The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, a big welcome to everyone. How many people are in Buddhist studies for the first time? So a number of folks. So Scott Jensen has, uh, over the last few years, uh, set up a live stream so there are people around the country also listening in. Not too many, but a couple handfuls maybe. And we do record these, so if you're sick or for whatever reason can't make it on a Monday night, we usually have the recordings up on the website a few days afterwards so you can stay connected with the class. And even though over the years, now this is uh, over 20 years, we've been doing the Buddhist studies. It's about a six-year curriculum, but not that that matters. People come and join at any point, but it repeats every six years or so. And so this is, I'm guessing, maybe the fourth time we've done this course on anatta. And I like it because I keep learning, right? That's the whole point is to contemplate, keep in mind what's useful to keep in mind. And it kind of grows on us, this way of relating to experience. And I'll talk more about that. But the point I wanted to make is we're really here as a community, even though it's a bigger group now over the years. And so it's different than some of the other programs at Common Ground where they're just drop-in. There's an expectation, not that you're not going to get sick or not that you're not going to have family obligations, but if you can come, that you will come, right? So don't worry if you get sick or have something that shows up in your life that's not appropriate to miss. Don't, be, don't feel guilty. Do what you have to do. Listen to the talk later. Keep working with your practice and doing the study that makes sense for you to do with your other obligations. But we're kind of, not kind of, we are depending on being here together with other folks who are interested in digging in. And not just hearing the teachings or reading some of the articles and other resource materials that I'll be sending out, but actually directly reflecting on it in your practice. And you're just, it doesn't matter if you're sitting in sort of the formal meditation pose. What matters is you're picking up the teachings and using them to illuminate to kind of, yeah, illuminate your actual experience and to see what is learned in doing that, how these maps, how these teachings help you to see what you haven't seen before about the nature of the mind and the nature of experience and the nature of suffering and freedom because whether we know it or not, we're actually interested in suffering and the end of suffering. We don't have to cultivate that interest. Right? I mean, we not, may not realize it because our strategy of dealing with suffering is to not be here. Right? We're, so we're distracted or in denial or lost in thought. But at, you know, when we start doing some of these practices, we realize I am interested in this. And that's kind of what holds, that's the glue of the community that does the Buddhist studies. And every other week, not this week, but next week, and then week four, and then week six, and week eight, the last half an hour will break into small groups. 
And that's a real act of generosity. It's not optional in the class. You know, you may be sick that night. That's fine. But don't try to sneak out so you don't do the small group or don't miss week two, four, six, and eight because you know there's going to be small groups. And you don't want to report in about what you're learning or not learning and why you're finding it frustrating or why you're finding the topic enlivening or whatever you're going to have to say. And I'll give you some um, general ideas about what you might talk about in those small groups. But of course, anything goes. And it's really a sacred coming together of a few people, three to four people, talking about what I'm, un- what I'm coming to understand looking at my own heart mind in these ways that we're going to do. So I say that not to scare you, but to create a sense of like, yeah, I'm all in. As you know, in a way that actually makes sense in my life. I'm all in. I, and I'm, and I'm going to benefit for, from other people being all in. And you probably noticed, for the new folks, that there is a prerequisite of having done three Retreats that can be short retreats, like half-day retreats. There are probably people in the room that have done, you know, over a year total of residential retreat practice, and there are probably some of you who haven't done three day-longs or three half-days or something like that. And you can check in with me if you have questions, or you can commit to doing your residential retreat. It's artificial. Basically, we want people in the course who are practicing, not just... Um, thinking about the teachings and reading about the teachings, but are really sitting down or doing the contemplations in a meditative way. So that's part of you know what we're doing together. Any questions about the nuts and bolts? I think people know we there's an optional sit at seven. Don't come in after seven o five. You can sit in the community room or the lobby. And then the bell rings at 7.25, then you can come in. And, of course, you can just show up at 7.25 or a few minutes before 7.30. You don't have to come to the optional set. But we want to keep it quiet. We don't want people coming in all the way through that optional set. Any nuts and bolts questions? Go ahead and keep the uh, refuge and precepts. If you're new to it, if you're not new to it, or if you have a sheet you don't want to keep, just leave it up here. Then we'll have some extras Um, for those who forget theirs or something like that down the road. Good, so I'll launch in. Save a little time at the end for questions. Thought I'd start with a very famous teaching from the Buddha on this topic. I'll just read from this sutta, this discourse. Recorded in the Pali Canon. Then the wanderer Vachagota approached the Buddha and said to him, How is it now, Master Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Buddha was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, the Buddha was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed. Then not long after this had happened, the Venerable Ananda was the Buddha's attendant and uh, sort of the person who's, you know, in the tradition said to have heard and recorded 
the teachings, memorize the teachings. Said to the Buddha, <coughs> why is it, Venerable Sir, that when you were questioned by the wanderer, you did not answer? And this is what the Buddha said. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer, is there a self? I had answered, there is a self. This would have been siding with those folks who are eternalists, right? So who presume that my experiencing, right now as a human being, I'm experiencing this moment, that the experience refers back to something like a soul or a permanent me, right? And so that's what is meant by eternalist. Like there's something that receives or um, exists to which experience refers back or somehow is connected with. So if I had said that there is a self, then it would have appeared that I was siding with these eternalists, with the folks that think that this experience as a human being refers back to something, someone. And if, when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, this would have been siding with those folks who are, are annihilationists, right? Basically feel like this is just a result of complex evolutionary processes and upon death, whatever this is, that ceases, right? Consciousness, the mind, whatever, is just biology doing its thing. And there's really never is anything. And the Buddha didn't want to be aligned with that. If Ananda, when I was asked by the wanderer, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, would this have been consistent on my part with the arising of the knowledge, with the direct experience that the Buddha talked about, that all phenomena are not self? Right? So whatever the knowing mind knows, Whatever it knows, that's a conditional, natural process. Sound is not self. Touch is something being known is not self. Thought, maybe you get got that sense when there's some real stable sensitivity to thought. It's interesting how impersonal thoughts begin to appear. Doesn't when you really look honestly with some stability of awareness, it doesn't appear that you're thinking that thought. That's a presumption the kind of habit-based mind projects onto experience. But we don't actually find ourselves thinking a thought. But you have to observe to see. So he, he basically says, if I said there was a self, it wouldn't really fit with what I've been teaching from my own experience, that all phenomena are not self, not personal, their nature. And Ananda says, no, it wouldn't, right? It wouldn't align with what you've been teaching. And then the Buddha goes on, and if when I was asked by him, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, the wanderer, already confused, would, had fa would have fallen into greater confusion thinking 
It seems that the self I formerly had does not exist now. Oh yeah, I had a self, but now it's gone. Right? Which is, of course, weird and crazy and doesn't make sense. So, of course, this isn't, you know, it's easy when we hear something like this to want to think it through. And it's okay to spend some time thinking it through. But what's of value for us, for this course, when we hear a teaching like that, is for this confidence to arise. Well, this is something I can check out for myself. Right? This is something I can check out. There's a mind here. And I can check out, like, there's knowing, and is there a knower? There's the knowing of sounds, but is there a knower? Right? We can be interested. So that's why I gave that article, and I'd encourage you to take it up. This is something that Joseph Goldstein, one of our senior teachers in this lineage of early Buddhism here in the West, um, came up with. I mean, it's nothing that teachers haven't been teaching forever, but. I think he wrote it up um, maybe about eight years ago. And, you know, for busy professionals or busy folks raising kids or whatever who don't can't go away for a three-month retreat every year but are really interested, really feel drawn to what the Buddha, Buddha, Buddha's teachings are pointing to, to really go to the very heart. Because in the Buddhist tradition, in the Buddhist teachings, The basic problem is we're living our lives with profound habits of misperception. And and one of the expressions of this misperception is this projection, like this filter or framing everything in terms of a personality view or self-view. And it's so constant and so culturally normalized that it doesn't stand out that I'm doing anything when I'm sensing that I'm here giving this talk. I'm wondering whether anyone's getting it or whether this is helpful, right? That that sort of selfing, that self-framing is just second nature because of the depth and momentum of the habit to do that that personality view, which is a misperception. It's a presumption that that view aligns with the way that it is, with Dhamma. So what we're doing is we're going to check it out. Does Dhamma, the way it is, actually support the presumption and that deep habit of the mind to constantly frame experiencing in terms as if it's referring back to a permanent me that is doing the knowing, doing the experience, experiencing, doing the hearing, thinking the thought, right? Because isn't that the conventional, current, ordinary way it is for us right now? I'm hearing this. I think I'm getting this. I think I'm beginning to understand this. But even that then arises within the self-framing, the personality view. I'm so glad that as Mark, I've been reflecting on this a long time and I'm starting to get it, right? So it, 
even our practice gets framed. Our whole, you know, conception of being a Buddhist practitioner is framed with personality view. This way of framing experience. It's pervasive. And as we check it out, honestly, we'll start to see how toxic it is. How, like, greed, anger, and delusion, which is sort of the short list of all of the patterns, the negative, unhelpful, unskillful patterns that cause suffering, require the misperception of self-view. Can we imagine greed without a personality self-view? Can we imagine ill will or hatred, fear, without self-view? No. I mean, try it. So when we do have greed showing up in our life, almost constant, and ill will and fear and irritation and different flavors of aversion showing up, then someone taking a course like this, we're going to be curious, oh, where's the self-view? Because we can start to illuminate the habit. Just because it's a pervasive and unseen habit doesn't mean it can't be brought into the light of awareness. Wisdom can recognize that habit of framing. Just like you can start to recognize it in your friends and other people you interact with, you'll see them in, you know, right in the moment, as you're interacting and talking with them, you'll see how their mind, I mean, it won't be perfect because you're not inside, but you can sense or intuit how they're framing their experience from a self-point of view. Projecting it inward, projecting it outward. Just like we can retrain our mind, like I can see all of you, if I'm, you know, if I've got some momentum, some confidence, for periods of time I can sense you as a natural process, I, as opposed to imputing there's a you behind what I'm hearing and seeing and observing. Just like I can do that with my own body and mind. The habit, the deep habit is to presume there's something it refers back to, that permanent me, that I can experience like even giving a talk and even the sort of, you know, personality that comes through when I'm in this role and the body and the movement and, you know, how I move my arms and, right, it's like, oh yeah, that's what I do. But I can train myself, I can keep in mind, right, to see it, to frame it as just a conditional, natural, impersonal unfolding of so many different causes and conditions. And even now, saying it out loud, you know, there might be some self-consciousness, but the self-consciousness that, you know, whatever that tension is, that can also be seen as that natural, impersonal, conditional arising. But the key is that we're not just thinking about it philosophically, but we're really using that Buddha knowing Dhamma, the awareness opening to the way that it is, you know, what's actually showing up. So that Buddha knowing Dhamma, remember the essential ingredient is Buddha knowing Dhamma isn't 
experiencing that, uh, it's a knowing that isn't dependent or mediated so much by the concept. Because no matter how we conceive it, it's not going to be it. Because we need to see it directly, immediately. <laughs> Nancy Buller, some of you know Nancy. She's one of our longtime teachers. She does most of the yoga classes here at the center. She gave me this thing, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if people know this. This little handout says, the more you know, the less confident you're likely to be. Because experts know just how much they don't know. They tend to underestimate their ability. But it's easy to... O- to be overconfident when you only have a simple idea of how things are. Try not to mistake the cautiousness of experts as a lack of understanding, nor to give much credence to people who appear confident but have only superficial knowledge. Right? So, you know, in this sense, you could, and people do, you know, they can, because it seems from the point of view of not having actually systematically used awareness to look at your experience, it could seem like, oh, he's an idiot, saying something like, this is a natural process. It doesn't refer back to me, right? Or any kind of suggestion of not-self, that how impersonal this is, can seem a little bit, insulting because it's so obviously wrong. And that's that overconfidence that arises from people who haven't actually bothered to look and check it out with some integrity, some persistence. Developing the kind of mind that can do that observation, right? Because that mind has to be clear and relaxed and stable and not have an agenda to prove. But just that simple, pure desire. I just want to see things as they are. I just want to wake up. That desire is quite wholesome and useful. And then this little handout quotes Bertrand Russell, this famous quote. The whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are so certain of themselves, yet wiser people are so full of doubt. And um, the Buddha, he, w- he kind of talked about this too with Ananda, who is often the fall person, you know, in these stories, kind of sets them up. And then this is when the Buddha was teaching on dependent arising. And uh, we've, we cover that as one of the eight-week courses in the six-year curriculum. I forget, you did it recently, didn't you? Or was maybe that was a sutta study. Maybe last year. But anyway, to just the short, that map is really the Buddha addressing the question to someone who might say, when they're suffering, it really seems like it's me who's suffering. And you teach about impersonal nature, so how do you, how do you explain how personal suffering feels? So the Buddha created a map that basically maps out how Suffering arises and feels personal. And that's the map of dependent co-arising. And it's a subtle, very powerful teaching. And so he was doing this teaching. And this is a, a sutta discourse on this. 
the Buddha saying, one who sees dependent co-arising sees the way that it is. And one who sees the way that it is sees dependent arising. This Dhamma, right, this teaching of the way that it is, that I have discovered is deep, difficult to see, difficult to understand. It's sublime, peaceful, beyond the range of reasoning, obtruse, to be realized inwardly by the wise. Now, when the Buddha says, I have discovered it, he, he doesn't mean that he was the only one to have discovered this nature of the mind, let's call it, nature of the way it is. It's just that nobody had, it wasn't common knowledge, it wasn't put out. It's, it's described in the tradition. Other people can have this awakening, but they may not be able to articulate it in a way that it becomes sort of out there for others to hear about. They just don't have the personality to be able to articulate their awakening. Right? So those are called Pacheta Buddhas. Basically, a person who awakens to the same thing the Buddha awakened, came to understand, but they might be seen as special human beings, like, boy, that person seems really together, but they can't help other people wake up. So Buddha is a title for someone who's awake and can articulate it in a way that's helpful for other people to have the same insight, the same awakening, the same understanding. And so Ananda one time you know, said to the Buddha that just something like, you know, it's, boy, this teaching on dependent arising, it's so clear to me, I really get it. And the Buddha said to him, do not speak in this way. This dependent arising is deep in truth, and it's deep in its appearance. It is the, through not understanding, through not penetrating this dhamma of dependent co-arising that this generation of living beings has become entangled like a matted ball of thread, become like grass and rushes unable to pass beyond the woeful states of life the cycles of suffering. Because right? we get trapped. And like in the Buddhist you know, world view, we cycle endlessly through. There's a famous story, some of you know this controversial Tibetan teacher, one of the earlier um, Tibet teachers to come to the West, and this, first to England and then to the United States in the 60s and 70s, and started Naropa uh, college or university in Boulder, Colorado. Some of you might have heard of that. And just you know, a piece of history, that was a really powerful conjunction because when that place, Naropa, was starting, I think in 1974, that's when Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg showed up and was, were asked by Trumpa Rinpoche to teach meditation. And even though they you know, didn't practice in the Tibetan tradition, that uh, somehow Trumpa Rinpoche recognized their skill at being teachers. And so they started to teach together then. And in a few years, less than two years, they came up with the money to buy a Catholic novitiary in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts. And that was became Insight Meditation Society in, I think, late 1975. So... Um, there's a famous little story where somebody asked Trumpa Rinpoche, well, what gets reborn? And what gets reborn, his answer was, I don't know if he said the defilements or your neurotic tendencies 
or unfinished business, right? But it's the force of habit of personality view and the greed, anger, and delusion that arise out of personality view and the impressions that greed, anger, and delusion leave on a, on a heart, on a sensitive mind, right? And the misunderstanding of those impressions because whatever burden that's left in my heart when I act out hatred, then because of the force of habit, I interpret that impression left by anger, right? The remorse or guilt or whatever it might be. Of course, I interpret it personally. I was bad. I don't want to be bad. I want to be good or whatever. Some of you might want to be bad. Oh, I like being bad. I want to be the most bad, the baddest. (laughs) But whatever it is, it's framed with personality view. And on and on it goes. So whatever that sets in motion, that's what's reborn. And the Buddha describes that, or we should say maybe the tradition describes that as endless, these cycles of delusion and the momentum of personality view sort of replicating itself moment by moment by moment. There's one more piece here in these, where the Buddha a little bit later in that discourse, profound ananda is this dependent co-arising. And it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this law that the world resembles a tangled skein of thread, a woven nest of birds, a thicket of bamboo and reeds, that people do not escape from birth, uh, from the difficult realms of existence, from the states of woe, and suffers the rounds of rebirth. So one thing that uh, I'll send out an article uh, next week that you can read from Ajahn Tanisaro, but he had something that I thought was really useful in understanding this the Buddhist teachings on anatta, and it's somewhat controversial. You can find a kind of a going back and forth between Ajahn Tanisaro, this um, Western monk. He practiced in Thailand for a long time as a monk, but for a long time now he's been a monk and the abbot at Wat Metta outside of San Diego and teaches around the country and around the world and is quite a scholar as well with Bhikkhu Bodhi, another Western translator, scholar, monk, around this point that Ajahn Tanisaro makes. And from his own study of the Buddhist teachings, Because normally the way that this teaching on impersonal nature, not self, uh, teaching is presented is as the sort of most fundamental teaching from the Buddha. And then we end up always with this question, okay, so not self, yet there's karma, right? That's a very important teaching from the Buddha. And karma is basically that intention matters. So what we do with intention, even thinking with an intention or speaking with intention or acting with intention leaves an impression. 
so not self yet intention matters how does that make sense right? that's a good question how does that make sense and the way that uh, Tani Saro talks about this that I find so helpful is he says actually the important thing to put first is karma so just from an ordinary sense as a human being what we know is that actions have consequences that's not rocket science that's directly confirmable all the time in our life when I'm in a funk being in a funk sets stuff in motion there are consequences when I'm in a good mood <coughs> excuse me that sets other things in motion right so the conditional, the lawful nature of our existence, that's the sort of foundational pointing out instruction. And actually, there are many, you know, this isn't just Ajahn Tanisaro. He's really deriving this point from the teaching because the Buddha talks about wisdom first and foremost in this discovery like we become a fully human being only when we begin to discern the difference between skillful and unskillful intentions. Or what we might call in the West, we become a moral human being. Well, we know the difference between lying and cheating and stealing and sharing and taking turns. And, right? and it's not like I'm being good because you know, I want people to think I'm good. No, we really understand that, you know, being bad, acting unskillfully causes suffering. So it's really an act of self-compassion and compassion for others that we learn the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. But when we're overwhelmed by life, have you noticed those times when we're really overwhelmed? We lose that moral compass and we can do things that aren't for our own well-being or others' well-being, but we're going to do them anyway because we've lost our moral compass. We're so overwhelmed, we're hurting so much that we're no longer discerning what's skillful and unskillful. So what do we do? I mean, just in a simple way, we might eat way more than we need to eat. And then already our life is difficult and now we have indigestion or now we get constipated or now, you know, whatever happens because we ate too much or we might drink too much or we might avoid doing what needs to be done and watch too much TV or any number of more unskillful things that human beings do that don't sort of alleviate suffering. They actually cause suffering. So, this first thing of, you know, with the understanding of karma, it matters what I'm doing. It matters how I'm showing up. It matters how I'm relating for my own well-being and for others' well-being. And really not distinguishing, like presuming that my well-being is different than taking care of other people's well-being. Really seeing the alignment, like as I take care of myself, I take care of others, I can take care of others in a way that takes care of myself. There's a way to navigate our complex lives, not perfectly, but there's a way to navigate where we're really attuned to the truth of karma, that it matters 
and we can take in both the subtlety and the breath, we learn, you know, how to hold that. And then the anatta teaching, the impersonal nature, really arises later when we've really got that truth, that it matters. Right? So we're living now as a moral human being and we're doing our best, we're vigilant in a way as a moral human being. We're not just consumed by the need to survive, we also want to be skillful and avoid being unskillful because we know it hurts ourselves and others when we're unskillful and we know it feels good when we're feeling, when we're acting, speaking, thinking in ways that are skillful. So now we're a moral human being, not just a beast trying to survive. And then the anatta teaching comes in there because it really addresses the question, how to be a moral human being where everything matters. Even the tone of my voice right now matters. Or the sort of inherent biases that I have seeing you all, right? And how they show up. All of that subtle stuff matters. How can I be in a world where everything matters without being tight? That's hard, isn't it? Because a really owning the truth of karma might help us avoid doing unskillful things and digging deep holes for ourselves. But it's stressful to have to be good. Because ha- it's not like there's a clear map. It's like moment to moment, sensing into the heart the quality of this intention. Is it coming? Is it greed? Or is it self-compassion? You know, It's subtle work. And a lot of times we don't know until we start to act it out and we realize it's mostly greed. Oh no, it's mostly wholesome love. Right? Trying to do the best I can in a difficult situation. And the way we know is because we directly experience the contraction when we're acting out in an unskillful way. Remember, unskillfulness always arises from personality view. And the wholesome qualities of love and kindness and compassion for ourselves and others always arises from the weakening of personality view. Right? Just like a mother, you know, the kind of stereotype of a mother running and, you know, doing something to protect a child. Because there's an expanded personality view has started to expand beyond the sort of more primal wanting to survive or take any way, any time somebody recognizes a bigger picture. So the anatta then is a strategy, is a teaching that allows us to completely and fully own our karmic situation. We're living in this complexity called human reality We've got a body, we have a conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, imperfectly, right? And we're constantly making choices and constantly receiving the consequences of the choices that are being made. Now, where's the freedom in that? Is there any freedom in that? So the Buddhist teachings on anatta, and just generally the Buddha's deeper, more subtle teachings, are how to be free as a karmic being. And he really avoided sort of 
stating categorical truths. And so it's better to think of these teachings as skillful means. That's how the Buddha refers to them. They're teachings that lead to freedom as opposed to philosophical ultimate truths. This is the way that it is, the truth, as a concept, as a conception. And that's what I mentioned briefly earlier, that no matter how we conceive or construct a truth with words, concepts, that will never be the truth. It will be a thought. And you got a little taste. What is a thought? Even a profound thought. Like, you know, people might say, hey, you know what? We're all one. Right? It's kind of an interesting thought. But what is that thought? It's nothing unless it points to something that's here and now, that's not dependent on the thought, right? The thought, we're all one, as a philosophical construct or whatever, it's just this ephemeral, wispy little mental activity that doesn't amount to much at all. And it's so true with so much of the spiritual jargon. So this is why, you know, in the, this tradition and different traditions, spiritual religious traditions talk about it in different ways. But here, you know, we make a big deal about awakening or insight. That's what some of you know the word vipassana. Sometimes centers like Kamgan were referred to as a vipassana or insight meditation center because we're talking about seeing something directly. And then the skillful means is we bring in that anatta anatta teaching, the impersonal nature. And so then, as a karmic being, where intention matters and there are consequences for skillful and unskillful intention, right? so stinginess would be an unskillful intention, generosity and contentment would be the skillful flip of that. Ill will would be an unskillful intention, kindness would be a skillful intention. You know, the intention to harm would be unskillful. The intention to be compassionate and to protect and to alleviate suffering would be a skillful intention. And maybe there's a way for me as a human being to navigate this territory of sensing and meeting each moment, but free of this navigation referring back to a somebody. Now, I I can guess at least some of you are thinking, well, if it doesn't refer back to anybody, why does skillful and unskillful matter? But you see, that framing comes from personality view. Like, I don't have to be good. Right? It's like, I'm off the hook. Because if it doesn't refer back... So that would be like the personality using the truth, its imagined truth of not-self, like, I could do whatever I want. You know, there may be people suffering, there may be things I can do about it, but why bother? You know, just live my life and stay out of trouble, and I don't have to be concerned about responding to whatever I'm whatever I hear about or whatever I sense right and we can get in our little bubble 
which is a lot of what we do. And some of the, you know, it is, they, they have this um, imagine like, hey, we're born, we die. We're just trying to stay out of trouble here. But the thing is, when we really um, use that uh, strategy of not-self, we become fearless in a way. It's like we're not afraid of sensing, like in terms of navigating our life, you know, we cultivate a wider and more subtle sensitivity. We're feeling, seeing more, and responding. doesn't mean we have to kind of be an activist that's going to address the sort of climate change or racial injustice. It may be that we grow a garden. I mean, who knows? But we're not growing a garden because we're afraid of anything, like afraid of the complexity or the messiness of navigating some other sort of issue that the heart might be moved by. And that's really what the teaching of anatta does. It really allows us to be in the complexity of life without being burdened by the sensitivity, by the kind of fierce and wholesome um, caring about the quality of intention. Like the desire, the wholesome desire to um, yeah, just plant beautiful seeds. Like everything we do, everything we say, how we are, leaving beautiful seeds behind. So I'll leave it here. We have a little less than 10 minutes. It'd be nice to have a couple questions or your own reflections from your practice if you'd like. And like I mentioned, we are recording tonight, and we will all weeks. Um, but it's nice if you feel okay to say your name. Anybody have any questions or comments to share with the group? Yeah, please. Uh, my name's Nick. Um, I was just trying to connect some of the things you mentioned about how hearing happens but there isn't a hearer but if intentions happen but is there a person having the intentions and how how do you think about how how does the cultivating of attention intention happen and that's something we can directly check out how does the how is it that an intention to move my body like i just did to hear that sound right because there was an intention to hear that sound right how did that intention arise? You know, and we're moving all the time. So there's an intention to move. So we have so many opportunities to uh, directly sense what the truth is. How is it that intention arises? And, you know, and we also have the Buddhist pointing out instruction. Things arise conditionally. So the intention to move, there were supporting causes. There was pain. There was personalizing of the pain. There was the arising of the thought, if I move, that pain will diminish. There was a liking of that conception that the pain would diminish. right? There was all those things that sort of... But every one of those supporting causes, if it were seen clearly, would be seen as just something being known. We wouldn't find somebody that it refers to. We'd only see something was being known. 
something was being known, something was being known. But that's something for each of us to confirm in our own experience. Yeah. And of course, intention is a relatively subtle part of what's unfolding here. And so then, because it's not easy to see clearly, we just it's easier to sort of hang the idea, what the Buddha would consider the wrong idea of self-view. That must be me. I must be doing that. Right? So we have, but that is just a thought, that sort of hanging personality or self onto with intention. It's just a habit, and it can be noticed. So one of the things I notice when I'm doing these, some of these reflections is, you know, there's going to be often a background of tension, energetic tension in the body and mind, and that sort of is a stand-in, like, yeah, I'm back here. I'm back. This is me, you know. I'm the tight one. <laughs> I know it's quiet, but I'm here. And just to, like, so whatever that subtle stuff going on, just see that. Oh yeah, that's something being known too. It's just something being known. And part of that, what's being known is the tendency to presume it's me. But that can be felt and seen too as something being known. And the key is to keep doing this even when the mind says something like this is silly. Oh yeah, that's something being known. Just keep doing it. Just trust the mind's capacity to be observant in an honest, stable way of every phenomena that is being known. Well, what about the stuff that's not being known? That's an idea that there's stuff not being known, right? Be known. That's all it is. Yes, take a drink. Yeah, time for a yeah, over here, caffeine in the corner. Thanks. Uh, this is Kathleen. I have a question about um, non-self karma and reincarnation. Uh, if there's not a self, why would we need to be reborn? Well, there is a continuity, a conditioned unfolding, right? And first of all, I think just keeping an open mind about that, not have a fixed idea that there is or isn't rebirth, Generally, in Buddhism, we call it rebirth, not reincarnation. And, uh, and the way to understand rebirth is how does one moment become the next moment? Because it really helps us understand what might happen at the time of the body's demise. And one thing we can kind of intuitively sense is the body has its own kind of trajectory, birth, aging, dying, death. But the mind doesn't have the same trajectory. It's definitely the mind <coughs> seems quite tethered to the body. Maybe shamans and people with particular capacities can sort of have some space or freedom from the body at times. Certainly in meditation, there can be the experience of not being tethered to the body. But generally speaking, our life is, is very much a body-mind coming together but even so, when we observe what we call body and observe what we call mind, they really have their own trajectory. 
you can be quite old or you could be dying, but the mind, what the body might be falling apart, but the mind doesn't need to be expressing what's going on in the body. So there, I'm just saying that, Kathleen, just as a way of keeping open about the natural, conditional unfolding of what we call mind. And as long as there's somebody who wants to be good or wants to be bad or wants to go to Italy or, you know, wants to see this person again, that force exists in that conditional unfolding we call the mind. That force of intention has, it is a force, like in physics, you know, What's that uh, law in physics about momentum being like it has to be expressed? And so if there's unfinished business, unfinished momentum, it will express itself. I certainly don't know what that looks like, but you know, generally we talk about it as rebirth. Like the mind, the tendencies, the unfinished business will find a way to keep spinning until there's no unfinished business. And so on our heart, someone who's uprooted personality view, then it's said that at the time of death, there's none of that momentum. So there's no neurotic tendencies to take rebirth. And then when someone asks the Buddha, this is a nice place to end because it sort of blows her mind. So somebody asks the Buddha, of course, you know, hey, what happens when you die? You know, and the Buddha sometimes was silent, but once at least, as it, as it was recorded in the discourses, the Buddha said something. Maybe he talked to the other monks later and didn't say it directly to the person who asked the question. But anyway, in the discussion at least, it was the person, this is a rough paraphrase, the person doesn't even know here, right here, the person talking to me, asking me what, what happens when you die doesn't even know what this is, the Buddha. Right? Like like I look at you and I think Kathleen, you know, because we have a relationship. We know each other, right? But I'm missing the point because really there isn't a Kathleen there. It's just an empty of self natural process happening there. So there's no like if I really saw the Buddha, if I really saw Kathleen, then that question like what happens when you die? Like if I'm just seeing, like we don't think about like what happens when this weather changes. You know, it's it's not like, uh, or where does this weather go? Or when the fire goes out, where does that fire go? We don't think that way. You know, oh, we had a big fire and then it went out. Well, where did it go? There's a snowstorm here, and then tomorrow it's not. Well, where did it go? You know, we don't think that way for natural processes. And the more we observe our thoughts coming and going, we realize that natural processes arise when there are supporting conditions, and then they cease when there aren't those supporting conditions. And so, the sort of when there's no neurotic tendencies to continue on. But what about me, right? Isn't that the feeling we have now? <laughs> I don't know if I want that. Because that's, that's the wrong view that I'm a self and I'm going to lose it. Right? That's that 
one of the sort of um, reverberations or the expressions of personality view, that I'm a person who has to give it up. But see, the teaching is to get to know what this person is because we only have to let go of what's not real. We don't have to let go of anything that's real. right? We don't have to put down anything that's real. We're only coming into alignment with the way it is, has been, will always be. That's all. We're coming into alignment with the way it is. So we don't need to be afraid of it because it's already that way. So, And if you don't like calling it not self, fine. right? Because it isn't about the wor- word. It's about connecting with the way that it is. And that's what we're about these next eight weeks. So we're a little bit after. So we should end here. Let's just take a moment. Let go of the words. Take a breath or two together before we end. Don't feel like you have to hold on to the words. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.